Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Prime Minister says the government recognizes the significant impacts of the coronavirus. That's why we're going to be uh, talking very soon about measures that Canada is going to put forward to support people on the economic side. On the health side, we're going to continue to act in ways uh, recommended by the top experts, by the top medical professionals, coordinate with other uh, levels of government, coordinate with the international community, do everything we can to keep ensuring that Canadians are kept safe. First Ministers prepare for a meeting on on Friday. Where I hope and indeed believe that the coronavirus and our national response to it is likely to be one of the most important issues. And the ethics watchdog dismisses conflict of interest allegations against the former clerk of the Privy Council. Wernick himself resigned last April. Uh, so he was the, virtually the head of the public service of Canada, uh, one of the top jobs in the entire country, and uh, he left that job under a cloud, so he's paid a price. It's Wednesday, March 11th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald, Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Mark. The Prime Minister is scheduled to appear at the National Press Theatre in Ottawa at 9 o'clock Eastern Time this morning and give an update on the coronavirus. Do you expect that there will be announcements from the federal government? There are people calling on the government to provide financial support now that this has turned into an economic crisis as well as a public health crisis. Mm. Well, I I do think there is going to be talk about uh, some sort of an economic package, um, you know, especially as it relates to uh, workers and employees um, and the provinces. Uh, you know, there's, there's talk in the media this morning that they're all set to announce different measures, uh, maybe on employment insurance, uh, you know, to help people who have to stay home. Um, all, I'm sure there will be more money for uh, the direct health uh, system, the health care system that's struggling uh, already to cope. Um, and uh, they're probably going to have to help out the provinces since uh, so many of these things land in the provincial lap, um, and there isn't a lot Ottawa can do in that sense other than to provide some cash. So, uh, But you're absolutely right. This is this has gone beyond a, a straight um, a health issue and, and into the economy as well, and, and I've seen a lot of predictions uh, even up to uh, using terms like demand shock, you know, if people aren't buying, uh, the economy is going to slow to a crawl. Yeah, and that's, uh, there are a number of different challenges here uh, that are different from previous economic crises as well. So uh, I think that's worth considering. Uh, there are people debating now what kind of role government can play in, in an, uh, a situation like this one. Well, that's right. But, but I mean, you know, uh, it, it is doubly complicated now because interest rates, which are the, usually the, the method that are used by central bankers to stimulate the economy, it's the easiest, quickest uh, way of doing that, to, to cut interest rates. But rates are at near record lows already. And there was a cut last week following the U.S. cut. And, uh, you know, I hate to bring up the name, but the Trump administration has been driving interest rates lower and lower and lower. And it's acted in the U.S. at least as a kind of sugar high for the economy for the last two or three years. Uh, but these record low rates, the danger of them is when you do get into a jam like North America and the rest of the world is in a jam now, uh, then you don't have that ready tool uh, to attack the problem with. So they're, they're going to have to look at it, you know, on the tax cut side, 
spending. Uh, you know, there's there's still a lot of money set aside for infrastructure projects that appear to be uh, hung up with interprovincial and federal provincial wrangling, and uh, you know, so they've got to kick out the the chalks from some of those and get them moving. In terms of specifics, we're hearing that the Prime Minister might announce waiving the one-week waiting period to get employment insurance for those people who have self-isolated because uh, they were exposed to the coronavirus or were at an event uh, where uh, someone had contracted the virus, was in attendance. Uh, and uh, there, there might also be uh, more research funding announced as well. So we'll see how that plays out. But how big do you think the economic damage could be here, Dan? And what impact do you think it'll have on the federal budget, which everyone is waiting for perhaps later this month? Well, uh, you know, the, the budget makers must be, you know, working around the clock because, uh, as I think you know, and a lot of our, our listeners would know, Mark, that the budget process is a long, drawn-out thing. Those numbers get in there, you know, weeks or months in advance sometimes, and it takes, um, you know, a huge effort in the government every year to put the budget document together. And then when somebody kicks the legs out from under most of your assumptions, like, for instance, the oil price, shock that's hit in the past few days due to international uh, events that are going on, um, that is something that Ottawa did not see coming and couldn't have seen coming. It, it's going to just pile-drive the Alberta economy again. So, you know, Alberta is going to need special attention and special care at this time uh, to get it through this next bit of crisis. But it's, it's a triple whammy. I mean, you have the oil uh, uh, you have the oil price shock, you have the coronavirus slowing demand, and you have uh, fairly slow growth even going into this. I think, uh, I'm going by memory, but I think the, the most economists were predicting less than 2% GDP growth in Canada this year, in any case, even before all this. So right. there's certainly going to be a, a big focus now on getting things uh, going. And uh, this is going to obviously be a major part of uh, discussions between the premiers and the, and the prime minister as well. Yeah, let's talk about that. We're expecting a first minister's meeting later this week. But of course, uh, just about any meeting in North America right now has uh, a kind of a cloud over it uh, and a question about whether or not it's going to take place. I assume this one will go ahead, uh, but there are lots of events being cancelled right now, so there will be people who will say maybe they should do a video conference instead of getting together in person. Uh, but uh, has has the coronavirus effectively overshadowed any other issue that the First Ministers might be talking about this week? Well, it's, it's the most urgent unpredictable and sprawling uh, problem. I mean, every day there are new cases reported. There are new cases reported in Alberta, I see several new cases. Uh, So it's spreading out um, as it has in almost every other country around the world. So this is the urgent priority. And as as, we mentioned earlier, the provinces are responsible for delivering the health care. So, you know, someone who has the coronavirus is going to be dealt with in a provincial institution, hospital, clinic, whatever, not a federal one. But the feds can do a lot in order, you know, to keep the money flowing and to keep the supports going to the provinces. And, I mean, it it doesn't matter a whit whether the premiers and, and, and Prime Minister Trudeau meet in the same room or the same building. They can have a video conference and get just as much done since, uh, you know, a lot of that work is done by public servants beforehand and, uh, uh, you know, in, in preparation for these events. But um, every premier is going to have a list for this conference. And I think there's a lot of nervousness out there 
about how this is all going to play out. And, and even though I do think, and, and I think most Canadians would agree, that Canada has been managing this better than most places, especially uh, in, really, uh, in comparison with what's going on in the U.S., is there anything else on the Premier's agenda? They often come to these meetings with, obviously, a list of demands uh, uh, that are not always met by the federal government, of course, but um, uh, they're typically, and the reason uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper have tended to avoid them is uh, they were typically an opportunity for the Premiers to posture against the federal government. Well, this is time-honoured Canadian political practice, of course, Mark, uh, you know, um, there's been the famous clashes over the generations, really. I mean, of you know, Alberta gets restless, Quebec gets you know restive, uh, and you know you have problems, chronic problems down here in the east. Uh, you know, Ontario has has had some hard times in the past few years. So each province has a list of things they want from the feds. But but you're absolutely right. I mean, the list is partly. Um, a practical demand and partly political posturing. So it, it uh, every one of these uh, premiers, uh, you know, has to get elected back home and has to keep up the political campaigning um, at all times. And uh, you know, I, there were days when I didn't blame Harper at all for not wanting to meet with a bunch of uh, people who would might seize the opportunity just to make political points. Yeah. Uh, but I do think matters are really serious now uh, economically with the virus and with the oil crunch. And, um, you know, I, I, this is not the time uh, to play politics, I don't think, at that level. All right. Finally, Dan, uh, the Federal Ethics Commissioner has said that there is no reason to believe that the former clerk of the Privy Council, Michael, Michael Warnick, broke conflict, conflict of interest laws during the SNC-Lavalin affair. So that investigation is going to go no further. Uh, that, uh, I gather, draws to a close at least one part of that scandal. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the sort of process that was undertaken uh, by the federal, uh, you know, ethics commissioner um, dealing with uh, dealing with these allegations that Mr. Wernick had intervened with Jody Wilson-Raybould when she was Minister of Justice on behalf of SNC-Lavalin. But, uh, uh, you know, after interviewing everybody and going through it, the commissioner, uh, Mario Dion, uh, said he didn't find... Uh, cause to pursue this any further. So you're right. I think this aspect of it is kind of going away. Uh, but in fact, the fallout, the damage, and the costs have already been paid on a whole bunch of levels. I mean, I think it was a major factor in the uh, Liberals losing their majority. Uh, two uh, capable people, Wilson Raybould and Jane Philpott, are out of the Liberal Party and the Liberal Caucus. Uh, you know, what, Philpott's out of politics. And so there, there, the damage and, and uh, uh, costs have already been paid of this thing. Uh, they haven't been zero, uh, even if Mr. Wernick, and Wernick himself resigned last April. Uh, so he was the, virtually the head of the Public Service of Canada, uh, one of the top jobs in the entire country, and uh, he left that job under a cloud. So he's paid a price. Uh, even if the uh, the commissioner right. has found no reason to carry on a formal process. All right. Good stuff, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Mark. Thanks for the call. That's Dan Legere, author and op-ed columnist for the Chronicle Herald. We will be announcing measures to help our workers, to help Canadians right across the country as things uh, evolve with the coronavirus. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. 
In the National Post, Murray Mandrick argues the oil meltdown requires budget adjustments and political leadership. Mandrick writes, No one could have anticipated the perfect storm causing this crash in world oil prices. We have survived them before, and they will be somewhat temporary. But we do have to readjust old, long-term thinking and act to deal with immediate problems. We were unprepared for this because we once convinced ourselves it would never happen to this level. How we deal with it now is a huge test of our political leadership. In McLean's, Jason Kirby considers the toilet paper panic and why more stockpiling is inevitable. Kirby writes, Fear is contagious. The frenzy for toilet paper is not that different from when customers, suddenly worried about the solvency of a bank, try to withdraw all their deposits at once. And we likely haven't seen the end of stockpiling, the inability to know how long COVID-19 will last or how bad it will get, combined with the ease with which social media transmits images of empty shelves, creates a potent environment for panic buying to spread. In the Globe and Mail, Gary Mason argues Alberta must learn from past economic crises. Mason writes, Alberta's governments have repeatedly plundered their riches until the next great fall. But a modest sales tax would hardly impose an impossible burden on Albertans while helping alleviate some of the damage from the gas price collapse. The compassion one has for a province has limits. If Alberta does not want to do anything to help itself, then you can't feel too badly for them. Eventually, you have to let them sort out these problems for themselves. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. This morning, the Parliamentary Budget Officer will release a study on Canada's surtaxes on steel and aluminum. CPAC's Martin Stringer has more on that. Mark, the Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux will release his report on the steel and aluminum tariffs, which were part of a trade war launched by U.S. President Donald Trump when he imposed a 25% surtax on Canadian steel and a 10% surtax on our aluminum back in June of 2018. Those tariffs were imposed on an estimated $16 billion worth of Canadian exports. Canada responded in kind by imposing an equivalent amount on in countervailing duties on a variety of U.S. products entering Canada. The tariffs eventually came off approximately one year later in June of last year. Now, among other things, the Parliamentary Budget Officer will provide an analysis of how much the Canadian government collected in tariffs from the U.S. That's kind of interesting to note because at one point the Trudeau government had promised more than a billion dollars in aid to help our steel and aluminum producers hurt by the American tariffs. Our smelting industry complained that they were seeing only a fraction of that money and that it should have been flowing because it was being diverted from the duties that Ottawa was collecting from the Americans. Mark, that study comes out at 9 a.m. on the PBO's website. Thanks, Martin. Also coming up today, the Prime Minister will speak to the media about COVID-19 from the National Press Theatre, then attend the Liberal Caucus meeting and question period. And Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will make a funding announcement and deliver a speech at the Canadian Horticultural Council Annual General Meeting in Ottawa. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, March 11th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.